Welcome to No Particular Hurry. My name is Dave Early. My guest today is someone you're probably pretty familiar with. When The Athletic hired him, I immediately subscribed without knowing anything else about them because I knew his work alone would make it worth it for me. Of course, I've since enjoyed tons and tons of amazing writers there. Not all sports teams have a reporter who is this good. In my humble opinion, this dude is easily one of the best beat reporters in the country. And I'm one of these sports fiends who reads a lot of sports writing, like an unhealthy amount of NBA and NFL. It's tough to find someone who knows the team cold, gets inside scoops, asks tough questions, practices real discerning journalism, and avoids many of the traps that can cause fans to lose trust in a reporter over time, but also educates his or herself on the game and has a very good eye for talent. If you want to learn about the salary cap, uh, a navicular bone, an orbital fracture, a thoracic outlet syndrome, a drop coverage, if you want to know what a hinky special is or if the process worked, read his work, listen to his Sixers Beat podcast that he co-hosts. Needless to say, I'm very excited to welcome the athletic senior writer, Derek Bodner. On today's show, we're going to get to stuff like, are the Sixers on the precipice of wasting the prime of their two stars? What did the Sixers front office express to Derek in the past? Does he have any long-term concerns about Ben Simmons' health, and would he reduce his minutes next season? Has Elton Brand, the team's GM, been a top voice in the front office over the last two years? Amazing question that we're even asking that. Are the Sixers making front office changes they don't really want to make because of public pressure? Is their dynamic too complicated to bring on someone as sought as, say, a Daryl Morey? Unpacking why Jimmy Butler isn't here and what would have happened if they offered him a five-year max. There's plenty of tea leave reading. There's plenty of speculation. And at one point, Derek even suggests that we might have one-upped one of the most depressing podcasts he's ever done. Hope you enjoy. Without further ado, let's welcome Derek Bodner. How you doing, Derek? I'm doing well. Uh, so it's good to have you. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I, was, I was listening to a podcast that you did, I guess, on The Athletic with Rich Hoffman. And a couple weeks ago, maybe before, uh, before we heard... Elton's press conference, and it wasn't a pretty one. I think you said it was one of the most depressing ones you've done. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's tough not to, and like, I, I don't mean to be depressing, but I think for me, as both a fan and sort of like an analyst, the most depressing thing to do in the in building an NBA team would be to waste the prime and the presence of a star. And I, I worry quite a bit that the Sixers are sort of on the precipice of doing that. I think the mistakes they have made that have led them to where they are now, I put them in a, in a spot where I think it is a, a growing concern and it's tough to be, it's tough to be optimistic um, or positive, I guess you can still have reasons for optimism. You still haven't beaten Simmons. It's tough to be positive when you're staring that in the face. And also when you look at maybe some of the management decision-making structure that would move them out of this place and you don't have confidence. So it's, it's, it's tough to be positive at this exact moment. Yeah. And, and I think that's a sentiment that a lot of Sixers fans are feeling right now. So, I mean, some of them are rooting for all the mayhem they're rooting for Jimmy Butler. They're rooting for Covington to sort of stick it to him. I think there's this, uh, sort of collective, you know, just let, let it all burn down at this point. But it's interesting. I hadn't really heard, that they are going to be one of those few teams that completely waste the primes of these guys. But I guess oh, that's not, certainly I, this I, direction. I want to be clear. I don't think they've, they've done that. I just, you can see a future where that is like, they're, they're the, the first couple of years into this partnership between Embiid and Simmons. Um, I mean, there are risks is, is all I'm saying. Yeah. What do you think one of those biggest risks is at this point? Oh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch. There's sort of like this nagging feeling in the back of your head with Embiid, where you just don't know how how many miles you're getting out of this car. Um, between the lower body injuries and the archetype and the um, style he plays, and just I mean, big men with lower body injuries, it, it's it's this ever present concern. And I'm like I said, I'm not saying like his prime is coming to an end, but there's just as always like wasting years with Embiid is scary to begin with. Um, and then you have just sort of like the reality of, you know, what is, what does Embiid have left three years on his contract? Um, if you haven't made serious progress in a year and a half, you're going to hear maybe not from Embiid or his camp, but you're going to hear speculation about whether Embiid should ask 
you know, to be traded or whether he will ask to be traded. And it's just, I think some of these deadlines creep up on teams and fans. And those are sort of like my two, but then there's also just the, well, who's going to be the coach? Who's going to be making the basketball decisions? And how can I can, how, how, how can I tell you as fans that you should have confidence in them? And right now I just, I don't know how to do that while being authentic to my beliefs. So it's, it's, those are sort of the, the main ones. And also you just look at the asset pool and, and where they have to go. Even a, a good season front office and management staff would have trouble, I think, building the pieces around these two unorthodox fits. And it's just, there's a, look, you have Embiid and Simmons. If the team is reasonably well built around them and reasonably well coached, that should be a 50 win team every year. I think that is a good team. But they're sort of stuck in that middle or threatened to be stuck in that middle ground that I think so many people, myself included, argued they need to get out of. And it's they're they're in a they're in a tough spot right now. Yeah, I, I was trying to put myself in Joel and B's shoes when I'm watching these games, probably like a lot of us, and you see he's got his bromance with Jimmy in Miami, and he's got he's watching Jimmy completely surrounded by these young JJ Reddicks, and I I couldn't help but wonder, is he a little jealous? Could he get a wandering eye, this really well-run franchise in Miami? And then he realizes what that he might be going back to, you know, two of us posting up at once, no room. Josh, Al, maybe they'll trade him, but I don't know. So I wouldn't be shocked if he, uh, you know, if he was at least thinking or feeling torn about staying beyond that contract, which is like you said, three years. I mean, and like I said, I'm not certainly not reporting anything here. I don't think Embiid is talking about that now, but there's just always like you. And I mean, this is something the Sixers front office a couple of years ago expressed to me. And it's true. Like you, you always, you need to make these people happy because they have the power to completely change the direction of your franchise. And is Embiid unhappy? Is he contemplating this? I don't know. Who knows? But there's always that threat, and it wouldn't even. I mean, it, it it's played out so many times in NBA history. It's impossible not to to think about it. Boy, you, you I think you have won up the negativity of my recent podcast by starting it off this way. <laughs> um, I apologize to everyone, but that's where we are. And you, you recently had a vacation, right? You needed one yes. after that that podcast. How was that? Oh, I mean, it was me and my two brothers go on a camping trip every year, and for a long time, I thought I wasn't going to be able to go because of COVID pushing the NBA season back. And then, I mean, if there's one benefit to the Sixers failing in spectacular fashion, it's that I got to go, you know, run away for 48 hours into a, a, a camping trip, which I thought I wasn't going to be able to, uh, to get to. So that, I mean, that is, is fantastic. Um, that is sort of like my way to get away and just, it, it's when I am most at peace in the world is when I'm outdoors in a, uh, you know, in a, a wilderness mountain biking or kayaking or something of that sort. And, uh, no, that, that was great. I needed that. I, I needed that to be for like two weeks instead of two days, but I, I needed that nonetheless. Yeah. Did, did you, do you feel recharged now talking about this, all this stuff again? Like you mentioned the coach, the front office structure, all of it. Every time I bring up one of these topics, I start to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like I've already thought about it and heard about it and I don't, nothing feels super hopeful no matter which topic we pick here. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, and this is one thing, you know, I think I, at times, uh, people would get on me for defending Brett Brown. And a lot of my, like, I never claimed Brett was a top five coach in the league. But a lot of my um, reasoning behind that is that players, this is a player's league. So I focus a lot on the players, how they fit, their talent level, and then also the people accumulating the players who then need to fit and have the talent to compete. Um, I still look at it. I think there are capable coaches. I think there are coaches that uh, can can succeed in the right environment. Is there a, a coach out there who will make any collection of talent succeed? I don't know, but there are certainly coaches out there who I think can succeed if they have talent that fits their scheme or they can adapt. But my big question is is going to come down to the front office, to management, and how they get the pieces that are, are really capable of, of competing at a championship level on both ends of the court. Because I do still think that I mean, like I started off with, this is a player's league. I don't think the players are good enough. I don't think the players fit well enough. And how do we get from A to B? And then, like, I don't want to push off the coaching concern, but I do think that is secondary to, to the players and the people selecting them. We'll, we'll go beyond coaching, but while, while we're on that, do you have any opinions on who they should hire? See, part of the problem, I, I love Dave Yeager. Um, 
the he's his teams have very consistently overachieved. He's also been a part of some clubhouses that have not necessarily gotten along well. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about a, a, a Simmons and Embiid, where the biggest threat is one of them running, I'd have to get a little more intel on that. But he's certainly near the top of my list. I think Ty Lue is um, a, a very viable candidate. Like I think people who dismiss him outright as um, you know just being a, a a buddy with LeBron, like I think they're underselling him. You know, do I think a lot of those three run pick and rolls will work with the Sixers? No, of course not. You don't have a a three or a one to run them with. Um, so he would have to change pretty substantially. Uh, you know, it's just a little easy when your starting point is LeBron James and Kyrie Irving than it is when it's Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. Like that's a very different offense. But I think he, you know, in terms of the way he was able to adjust in the playoffs and the way he was able to get those um, stars and personalities to align to a, a common goal, at least when they needed to be. You know, I think he is is in the running. I'd love to see Becky Hammond. I, this is tough because assistant coaches, I like going off of, um, you know, coaches who have been a head coach before because I have a lot more information to rate them on. Whereas with assistant coaches, you're kind of a little bit beholden to what's the narrative out there. How well have their their current teams been, you know, pushing for them and how good are they at, at PR of their candidacy? But everything you hear about Becky Hammond is, is that she is deserving and ready. Um, and you'd love to see a Sixers be, you know, sort of the first team to give 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 them give her a chance. Uh, do I know for sure whether or not she's ready? No, I'm going off of other people's opinions, but everything you hear is is positive. Um, you know, and then obviously Billy Donovan. He has had success at both of his stops. Hasn't gotten, you know, I think some people will look at his his, his playoff um, burnouts, but I think he has been a, a a good coach and certainly has the clout where he can walk in and, and command respect from Embiid and Simmons. So those are, I think those are probably the top of my list. Um, Ime Odoku certainly was billed as that when he came here. Uh, I have a little bit of a um, concern that the defense underachieved so drastically when that was sort of under his purview. But he certainly yeah, has a reputation. Probably dropped from the bubble, didn't it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I mean, I don't. That's always tough to know how much you know without Ben Simmons when he's still an assistant. So it's, like I said with Becky Hammond, you just don't you don't you don't have enough information. You can't draw that clear line with them. But he certainly had that kind of a a reputation before he got here. You think he should have got shake to stop Tatum? <laughs> I think that might have been a, t- a tough test. That <laughs> might have been a tough test. I, I kind of like the idea of, I mean, if you want to find the next star coach, you probably want to take a risk. You know, if you if you were to name, if I were to tell you one of these people is going to be the next superstar coach, it might not be a Dave Yeager. It might not be a Ty Lue, even though those guys come with on the resume, that accountability thing that a lot of people think Brett didn't have and maybe Ben and Joel really need to hear. For sure. I also kind of roll my eyes at this whole idea. I imagine how many times are they going to have heard that this next coach is going to hold them accountable when he finally comes in there and or she says something. They're going to be like, here we go. Like that moment in an 80s movie where the, the new teacher is so tough. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're thinking back to Miracle and, and the, the, the wind sprints and all that stuff. And yes. Are they, not- are they really going to get him shooting and get right. him to change his diet oh, with no, some I, like, tough love? I, I, think, I think some of this is, you know, Brett is an easy scapegoat in that regard. You know, you have Joel Embiid, who's never been committed to his diet, is still not committed to his diet. You have Ben Simmons, who's never shot in front of a large audience, who still won't shoot in front of a large audience. Are these problems with Brett not being able to get them to do something they've never done? Or are they problems with the players who need to have some personal self-accountability the, the, the part of the reason you change a coach is you just don't know. They, they haven't known another NBA coach during their time. So let's, let's see. Um, but it is, you know, I think expecting, and then it's, you, I mean, you mentioned finding the next great coach and certainly like, um, you know, I think it's, it's an easier sell to say, well, this person will we'll say Brad Stevens before he came in the NBA, he's the next rising star. Whereas maybe with Dave Yeager, you don't like, he's going to be good, but you don't have much confidence. He has top, five coach in the league potential. And I think that's, that's, that's a fair way to look at it, but it's also when you have a team with championship expectations and also established stars, um, you know, can you hire somebody from say the college ranks and have them come in and have the kind of authority and clout? It's a, it's a tough tightrope to walk, 
you know, I don't know exactly which way it's so much. It's so tough for like, I know we're in the media. We're supposed to have opinions on, on everything. It's tough for us when we don't get a chance to really talk to them and do the background check. It's sort of, uh, (laughs) this is going to sound like I'm I'm excusing my Markel Fultz evaluation, but we only had a very select portion of the Markel Fultz pre-draft evaluation and missed what might be, well, certainly was in this case, the most crucial aspect to it. That's where you really need these teams and this could be a perfect segue to another topic, but you really need these teams who are doing these hirings <laughs> to be as dedicated and devoted to a deep dive as you can get because balancing that tightrope is tough. Yeah, I, I had a similar opinion to you. I, I remember, I think you tweeted, it doesn't matter that he shot so poorly. And if that's all you were going on, I agree. I think there was that Michael Lewis chapter in Daryl Morey's book about how you don't want to be the, the team who saw Darko Milicic get hot and draft him. So it's easy to throw out like the 30 shots he took. But like you said, there's there should be teams dedicated. Once Danny Ainge called them and said, I'm looking to trade this guy after spending a few days, I would have Why are you looking to trade? Myself. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and look, Boston, I don't want to give Boston like, and, and I really don't even really want to spend a, too long talking about Markel Fultz. We've, we've, we've suffered through that enough. I don't want to give Boston too much credit in saying they saw this coming, but they certainly saw what I'll call it maturity concerns and inner circle concerns that factored into their evaluation. Look, uh, they were higher on Tatum than probably anyone. Um, they were probably lower on Markel in the skill set than a lot of people. So it's only a, a piece of the equation, but I do think it is a piece of the equation that these Sixers largely ignored. And that, that goes into coaching searches and background checks and all that as well. Yeah, let, let's transition. Like you said, we've we've done faults enough. Let's do uh, let's do Ben. What do you think about his his injury situation? Does that concern you at all? He's had the foot, the Jones fracture. I think he did the back this year, and then he did yeah. this Ella. I mean, I would say of of those, the back is probably the most concerning long term. Although even that it was such an acute injury and not a stress fracture that I think it's they're not super high concerns. The Jones fracture, he's been okay on for so long. Um, that it's a little easier to overlook, you know, but this is a, a person, he seems like he either is an Iron Man and nothing like there's no nicks and bruises or it's, oh, he's gone for four months. And it's, it's, it's tough because some of those injuries are concerning, but everyone, he's sort of come back from fine. So until that no longer happens, I think I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but you, you never know. Like our, our ability to read whether or not somebody is injury prone or just has bad luck, whether or not these are going to be nagging and recurring injuries or just one-off chances, probably not as great as we think it is. But right now I'm not overly concerned. There's a little concern if you're talking six, seven years down the line, and maybe some of these injuries sap away some of his physical gifts. Um, that's a factor in that too. It's not just the Jones fracture coming back up and 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 him having a, a setback in that regard, but like how long can he retain this elite athleticism that really makes him unique? But right now, I'm not on my li- look. I have a lot of consist- a lot of concerns for the Sixers over the next three to five years. I do think that's pretty low on the list. Would you consider uh, reducing his minutes moving forward? Oh sure, sure. I mean, uh, in order to do that, you need a, a at least one other player who can dribble and pass, <laughs> which the Sixers have have largely ignored. Uh, Will not even or not? Yeah. yeah. So yes. Like I don't, you don't want play, players playing 35, 36, 38 minutes per game. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think he needs to be playing like under 30. Like, I don't think you need to go too far, but yeah, I, th- I think, I think usage is a, is a concern for sure. If I, if I was part of this, you know, collaborative apparatus or whatever it is, I would be concerned. Have you applied? Not, <laughs> no, you I don't know. think, I don't think I'd be high on the list, but yeah. Um, I, I would be concerned, you know, and like you said, not immediately, maybe not this year, but I guess sometimes you look at Ben like you do these other unicorn type guys, like, uh, you know, Giannis finally got the injury bug this time, but like Anthony Davis, Porzingis, even Joel Embiid, these guys who are such a combo of size and agility that sometimes they have trouble keeping up with the modern pace. And so for someone like Ben, I guess what starts to become a long-term concern is if He's not going to develop as a shooter. What happens if he loses a step? For sure. Yeah, and look, I mean, he's still, he, he could lose a step or two and still be in the elite class of athletes for his size. 
but yeah, you want to you want to make sure that 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 stays with you. And I mean, we, we've seen so many times now where, look, I don't want to say regular season wins aren't important. Um, you would have liked to have seen them get a a top two or three seed, but you do like you need you need players ready for the playoffs. If that means playing thirty three minutes instead of thirty six minutes, I think that's a reasonable reasonable trade off. And all right, let's let's move up this totem pole a little bit. So, I guess it was the. Elton Brand press conference that that frustrated you and Rich, and it was it was essentially Elton admitting I might you know maybe it, maybe they were leaning into I wonder did he decide to say what he said or was that a were they did they tell him to say hey look you didn't have a ton of say lean into that I mean that, that that's a question I can't entirely answer um, you know I think that is if I had to speculate. I think that would probably be him, you know, sort of saying that, like, look, we can change some of the pieces behind the scenes. You know, I, I'm, I mean, he knew that he was still going to stay there. So I think that is maybe sort of like the only way to sort of spin it is that I didn't have full say before I do now. Uh, it puts you in a little bit of a tough spot as a fan though, because it's like you have two options. Um, either the, you know, basically you have this wildly inexperienced GM who beforehand it was justified that he's it's okay that he's ex- inexperienced because you have all of these A plus personnel behind him, and now you're saying okay, well that A plus personnel wasn't good enough, but this inexperienced guy that we we previously thought wasn't ready to run the show by himself, he's now ready to run the show by himself, and it's just like as a fan, what are you looking at to support that? What moves are you looking at to say, well, yes, clearly he's ready, he's shown it by this, I have confidence because of this action, let's go. And I, I like, okay, maybe the team has seen other things, which would indicate that he is pretty much edge case in terms of being ready to actually run a team. Because in terms of experience, he's still, even after the two years that he spent as GM, he's still, there's, I mean, you won't find a more inexperienced GM across the league. So maybe we've seen stuff behind the scenes that indicate he's ready faster than anybody else. But like, as a fan, I don't know what you would look to and say, Clearly, I mean, it, we can tell that by the moves he's made, or even even the press con- conferences he's done. It's it's a. I mean, the way I phrase it, it's a it's a real tough sell. It's a it is a tough sell. What what is your? You can speculate here. I, I'm not asking you to know this, but what is your opinion of how much power he has had over the last two years? Oh, I don't I don't think he was the strongest voice in that front office. Um, I, I think I'll I'll probably hold off saying too much more than that. In part because if I want to break some news, I'm going to do it on my own podcast or written. But no, I don't think he was the number one voice in that decision-making process. Yeah, A lot of fans think, and if you're reading the tea leaves now, it's starting to feel like they may even be pushing this, that Alex Rucker was the one making. Who Gee, you, at think least- you think they're pushing that? <laughs> yeah, it's certainly uh, it's certainly setting up, but he's still there, so that's surprising too, right? I mean, nothing. Even if you go to the coaching staff, the only person who has been removed from the front office directory is Brett Brown. Everyone else is still, to my knowledge, employed, which is surprising because we're I mean, we're going on over two weeks now since they sort of had this uh, this press conference. Um, Does this give you deja vu, twenty eighteen? Uh, yeah, a, a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, and I, look. If they go too quickly and, and make this, it's tough. On the hiring decisions, I want them to take their time. Uh, certainly, they, 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 it's, it's a double edged sword, though, because you want, like, everything that has happened with this front office has happened not only months ago, but largely over a year ago. Like, there's not a whole lot to evaluate in terms of you did this well, you did this poorly, you added this to the team, you, 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 you sent us off, off course. Like that should all be known. So it feels like there's a lot of politicking going on right now on, on stuff that decisions that should largely already. I mean, look, there's when, when the season ended, they knew they wanted Brett Brown gone. Like they knew they wanted to change a coaching staff. They came to that conclusion months and months and months ago and barring something unexpected happening, that was going to happen. I'm surprised that it almost feels like they're being pushed by public sentiment into making changes that maybe they didn't want to make beforehand. And that's sort of, and that's not me reporting, that's me tea leave reading, but that's sort of like how it feels. And now it's, it's like, well, what's going on? Is everyone like behind closed doors trying to save their job? 
there are people leaking stuff to certain people in the media to try to make themselves look good to save their job like that. It feels like they don't entirely know what they want to do in terms of changes. And I think we're seeing that play out. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Do you ever get that? I'm curious. Do you receive anonymous sources that you don't report? Does it feel oh, too agenda-based? All the time. I, all the time. All the, all, so I, I have very little interest um, in being like the mouthpiece, the mouthpiece or the, you know, blah, blah, blah is blamed for this move. Like I it's just, it doesn't, it there's right now, if anyone would tell me stuff, I would say, but why would I believe you? And that would be like my number. My, my job is not to take what I'm being told and relay it to fans. My job is to report on what is going on. So yes, you certainly get information that you go, look, I know, I know that's bullshit. Or I know that's one-sided. Um, I don't. I don't like reporting one-sided information. I guess is the way that I would, I would phrase that. Um, so will I report later on what's going on? Maybe, but I would need to have a more fleshed-out picture than I got a text message from this executive who wants to pin Al Horford on this person. Like it's just <laughs> that I don't have too much interest in doing that. Do you find that people conflate what you report with your own opinions sometimes when it might not necessarily be true? If you oh, say sure. so and so thought something, they think. You and got I, this wrong. Like, and I think I, I, I by, by not being a mouthpiece in a certain way, I sort of encourage that because, like I just admitted to, like clearly you talk to people, you hear stuff, so that will at times, like you will, you digest that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. I, I do think sometimes people will read into stuff when really it's, and that's why I try to be super clear sometimes, where it's like. I'm just speculating or I'm just reading the tea leaves. Um, but it's a, it's a tough balancing act because yeah, sometimes people assume like there's something more behind it when really it's just your opinion. It's um, yeah. Well, I think fans would like to hear your tea leaf readings on a lot of this stuff because you know, it feels like you probably have access to more information than we do. Yeah. And I mean, look, it's, it's, it's still, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you will. Yeah. I'm not sure how, how better to, uh, to say that, but yes, you, you talk to people, you digest that information, you try to then verify it with other, other sources. Um, and whether or not you can verify that or whether or not you trust it, like all of that gets factored into a big jumbled mess in my brain and, <laughs> and can factor into a tea leaf reading for sure. Do, do we think, do you think that, um, Elton will truly have an autonomous voice now moving forward? Nope. No, uh, look, uh, will he have more autonomy? Will he have a larger say? Yes. But ultimately, every every organization comes down to the ownership and the managing partner and then their ability to sign off. And in some organizations, that owner trusts the GM almost implicitly. And in other organizations, there are a lot of voices in that owner's ear. <laughs> I think the Sixers will continue to have numerous voices in Josh Harris's ear. Uh, Elton might be a larger voice than he was. He might be a larger voice in terms of the front office the people representing the front office in those meetings. But this, I don't think this is going to be as clear of a cut, um, you know, power structure as, uh, as some other teams have. What do you think this has isn't been... Sam Presti in Oklahoma city, for example? Right. What do you think has stopped them or held them back from just making clear that they really do want to hire the next, uh, you know, the top candidate that you might pull up on bleacher report or the athletic and see these five names and go for those guys they might start with some of these pie in the sky names in 2018. I think they went for Daryl Morey, but there were probably more realistic people they could get that they didn't move forward with. So what stopped them in 2018 and what's stopping them now from just doing that? Is it money? Is it more power for themselves? I certainly don't think it's money. Not you know, money. I think I here, here's one thing I'll say about Josh Harris. I think if he feels like he can make a move to, I, Honestly, one of the things I think Josh Harris gets undersold for, and look, he's a billionaire who wants to make more billions. I don't, don't misinterpret this whatsoever. He cares about money, but I do think he cares about winning too. So I don't think he's going to go out there and just sign a 
C minus GM to save a couple of, of, of bucks. I don't think I, I, from a business perspective, I think he's smart enough to know that the best way to continue to make money is have a relevant team uh, that fans want to go to and fills the arena every day. So we can get a new arena and all like, I think there's a calculation in his head that says I can like the g- salary of the GM. It pales in comparison to what I can make on the return on that. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think Josh Harris wants to win um, both because I think he does actually enjoy that aspect of professional sports. And also because I think he believes winning will help him make more money. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's money per se. Um, you know, I think there are, in some ways, I think Josh might be a little too trusting. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of voices that he listens to and trusts. And bringing in, it's a complicated structure to bring in an established GM like Daryl Morey into. And I guess that is the overly simplistic way I would I would say that. In a inten- somewhat intentionally vague manner. You think he feels, maybe because he's persuaded by people who are already there that they're the best ones for the job they have access to him he's comfortable with them maybe we do have an all-star team even now yeah i, th- I think he believes in the people that are around him i, I think he i think i think he does uh, i think he legitimately believes and i think that's probably part of the why reason why this is tough um you know i think in terms of the front office i think he believed in those guys certainly at this time two years ago you know in terms of the other people he has around him i think he believes in them and you know, maybe that influences his decision to go out there and completely rock the boat and change. You know, I think when, when, when Brian Clangel left, I think they were happy with where they were. You know, I think they looked at it and they said, we still have Embiid and Simmons. We still have pieces to get, because by and large, Brian, Brian Colangelo had, had sort of like pushed the, the large scale decision-making down the road. He had, he had really backed off from making, um, significant expenditures because he wanted to keep that cap space. And that was a summer they were going to use that cap space. I think they still felt like they were flexible. I still think they felt like they had confidence in the staff that was around him. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that changes this time around. Do you think there there's an embarrassment factor? Like, it's pretty well reported now, even if it's not mainstream knowledge, but Sixers obsessive fans know that they sort of went to this, like his day job investment committee, and it has... Ex- at least partially explained so many of the mistakes we've seen. This, you- this, their biggest problem, it seems to me, has been like decision making at the front office and executive level. Yeah. Um, do I think he's embarrassed by it? I, I don't want to read. Uh, if there's anyone in the organization I have, I have limited access to, it's Josh Harris, which makes sense. I've been a little critical at times. Uh, I don't want to read into what he feels embarrassed embarrassed by i think he doesn't like the amount of scrutiny and pressure he has gotten because of how things have turned out you know i do think public pressure here's what i'll say i firmly believe that they were going to get rid of brett brown after the toronto series last year um you know i after after the game like i was in the hallway and the interactions i had with the coaching staff it was very much a um saying goodbye i think i think they felt like they were going to make a change with the coaching staff last year. And I think the public pressure veered Josh Harris to a different course. And I think you can go back to various points in this team's history. I do think public pressure influences their decision-making. So are they embarrassed? Maybe like, I don't think Josh Harris expected this kind of scrutiny when he bought a team. I don't think he particularly likes, you know, I think he wants to be seen as the person who gets out there and is hailed for giving the team the resources and guiding them to a championship. I think he wants that kind of adulation. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, I don't think he likes all the criticism that he and his management team around him are being thrown to. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, do I think there could be a chance he's, he's somewhat embarrassed? Yeah, I think there's a chance. I wonder, you know, cause it seems to me like if, it, if I were in his shoes and I, I ran this type of decision-making structure that was pretty widely criticized. I mean, you have Zach Lowe and, and Woj talking about how, complex it is and how it didn't lead to good things and they've got all this stuff and now it's gone um and you and you're writing that i would think look let me just go hire the best executive i can get from boston or toronto uh and just be hands off at least i'll win there if we mess up then at least i did everything i could yeah why don't they do that i mean it's a good question let the person pick their whole team yeah 
No, I look, I, I, I agree. Um, like I said, in 2018, I think they, I think they had confidence in the team that was around them. I think that was a miscalculation. Can I claim to know what they're thinking is now? No, I, I don't know for sure what they're thinking is now. Yeah, I don't know why they thought they had an all-star team anyway. It wasn't yeah. like ter- things in Toronto were so good or let JJ Reddick contract here. Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 a. I mean, that, that's a million dollar question. I truthfully, <laughs> I don't know. But no, I think you get. I think you gave us some tea leaves that are interesting. Um, all right, we're all watching Jimmy Butler. I've heard you say. I I don't think you reported whether or not. Let me ask you this: true or false? The Sixers offered a five year max for Jimmy Butler. No, false. False. I, I, I did. I did report that, by the way. Oh, you did. Okay, sorry, I missed that one. No, that's, that's fine. You should remember every report that came out a year and a half ago at this point. <laughs> um, all right. So, in, in your opinion, then, if they had, would he have accepted it? I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say he would have taken the four year max in Miami over the five year max in Philly. Wow. I, do, I, I look. I think the fifth year was a big factor. Um. That's like fifty million dollars less. It's 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 a significant chunk less. I think it would have been close. I think the let's put it this way: if the Sixers put a five year max on a table. I think they were in the running, but I think there were a lot of concerns on both sides of the table of sticking the rest of his prime in Philadelphia, um, and and for them committing to the rest of his prime. You know, I think, and and this is something I said recently. Like, I think if you're looking at it, and you said, well, if Brett Brown wasn't here, Ben Simmons would be in Philly, or if, or I'm sorry, if Brett Brown wasn't here. Uh, Jimmy Butler would be in Philly, or if Ben Simmons wasn't here, Jimmy Butler would be in Philly, or all these things. And I think it's much more, you know, I think Jimmy, first of all, I don't think he agreed with Brett. Uh, I don't think he agreed with his system. I don't think he, I think he wanted his own team. I think he wanted to be the primary focal point offensively. I think he, quite frankly, I think he wanted to be the highest profile player um, on the team. I think he wanted to be in Miami. I think the Sixers were concerned about the five-year deal. I think the Sixers were concerned about Jimmy's history in the locker room, not only with Brett Brown, but also with any coach they would then bring in there. I think they were concerned about the uh, relationship between Jimmy and, and and Ben and also how the on-court relationship with Jimmy and Ben would unfold if Jimmy took more and more of the ball handling responsibilities. I so, think all, all of right, these so were, were – go ahead. Adjust, adjust these percentages for me then, like if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly. Let's say 25% on-court fit with Ben – 25% his personality, you know, clashing with teammates or coaches, 25% maybe his age and his contract. And then what? Do they do they save significant money doing what they did? If they had him and Reddick on the books, they would be paying even more in um, repeater fees down the road too, right? So maybe money? Well, I mean, JJ would be a short term. Like you would figure JJ would have been a two or three year deal. Um, so you would have saved a little bit there. But you would have been higher over this cap. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'd have to look at the overall cap sheet. Um, you know, I think that it's adjusting those percentages. I think if it was, I honestly, I would put Brett Brown low on that list because I think if, if, if the rest of those concerns weren't there, honestly, I think they would have changed the coach. If they felt like Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid were a long-term fit, five years were good. I, I, I don't think Brett Brown gets in the way of that. So I think he's probably the lowest. I think the, the fit with Ben is higher than that. I think the concerns over the contract were higher than that. And quite frankly, I think in terms of the six, now this is coming from the Sixers perspective, not Jimmy's. I think the, um, you know, his history in locker rooms was probably the highest, especially when you talk about a five-year marriage. Uh, so I think all, of, like I said, I, it, it just percentage, we can debate whether or not one of them's 30% or 20%, no, uh, we don't 35% or 15. Like I, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I, I just, I, I don't think any one of them truthfully was, was, was the deal breaker. Okay. And all right. So you've, you've written, I guess it was in February that trading Embiid and Simmons is not the answer. I know Elton Brand came out and said, he's not looking to do that. Do you think that's good? Yeah, you know, I think they should have a chance to play for another coach, another system, and with a supporting cast that um, fits around them a little bit better. Uh, by a little bit better, I mean a lot better. Uh, preferably a lot better, but in terms of realistic, you can only make so many changes in one offseason or even two. Um, yes, I do think that that they... I, look, nobody's off the table. I don't... Like, that's just not something I believe in 
as a a thing in the Who's NBA. The worst player that you're not hanging up on in an offer. I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. I have to think. Uh, I'm hesitant to answer that because I don't want to sound like an idiot. Right. I would right. have to actually uh, think about that quite a bit. Um, so we we had a. I think it was Sean Kennedy, one of our editors, who said he would consider Beal, Bradley Beal. Oh, I'm Beal's a fantastic player, um, and he's a young player. He's a uh, good fit with Embiid. Like you don't hang up on that. Could I pull the trigger? I'd have to think about that a lot more. But yeah, I I wouldn't hang up on that. For sure. I think an under sort of an under talked about thing is how the, the franchise has uh, I don't know if they failed him, but they have done a very, very bad job of getting the most out of Ben Simmons in terms of the teammates he's playing with, how they're using him. Like it took them forever to realize, you know, use him in short roles. You you know, spread the court have him do other things besides being a point guard or a dunker spot. Why do you think, do you think that's on coaching? Do you think that's on these quote unquote analytics guys who have to go or. Well, I mean, I think, I think a part of that, you know, I think, I think part of that is, you know, I think Ben likes having the ball in his hands and you have to convince him that, yeah, you might start off with the ball out of your hands. You might start off setting a screen, but you are going to get the ball back at some point. Most likely. Do you think he's been resistant to, you know, playing that big role. Yeah, I think he would prefer to play the point guard. Certainly, I think when he came into the league, and look, people like to talk about, oh, he was a four man at LSU. But if you go watch back and watch the four, uh, LSU games, maybe he wasn't bringing the ball up every time, but he, they ran a lot of their offense through him. Uh, he was accustomed to having the ball quite a bit and changing that substantially. Uh, you know, I think certainly early in his career, he was probably resistant to that. Um, but I think also part of it is like, yeah, you're going to use him in a role, man. But like, especially before Shake emerged, like, who the f is going to be the ball handler? Like, Howell Neto's not a like that's not a playoff solution. So I think there was part of it where like the team just wasn't built to even utilize him in that role. So I think that played into it as well. Um, yeah, no, I I, th- I think earlier in his career he was probably a little bit resistant to it. I think he he, he liked being a six foot ten point guard, but also I think that um. You know, the Sixers just haven't been built. Like, the million-dollar question to me. I keep saying that. million dollars isn't even that much anymore. It's a minimum salary contract. The, the big question to me is why they had that obvious blueprint in place when they drafted Markel and then just completely abandoned it. And I mean completely abandoned um, until they got Jimmy Butler. And even when they got Jimmy Butler at the beginning, he wasn't being utilized in that role. Um, it's a... It's, you know, it's it's a it's a question that needs to be answered. I think. So you're saying they miss Colangelo, who wanted Markel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying exactly that. No. Are, are you saying that this regime has been worse than his? I think they've made more mistakes. Like if you look back at the Colangelo era, and it's real tough to separate because by and large we're still in the Colangelo era. <laughs> era we just don't have Colangelo Touché. around anymore. Uh, they didn't make many mistakes, in part because they were pretty focused on maintaining flexibility for free agency. So like outside of Markel, they were, you know, you were taking swings, but they weren't like, you know, they, 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 they weren't putting you behind the eight ball. So I think they've made more mistakes since Colangelo has left, but none, none of them really pushed the quote unquote program forward in any meaningful way either. What about this hiring timeline? I, I know you said that you would take your time on hiring executives do you do you feel like the draft and potential draft day trades is a factor? Do you want to get people in house and give them some time? Yeah, I mean, look when I when I say take my time, I mean like a couple of weeks. <laughs> I, like you don't want to go like two months and all of a sudden you're in November and you're at the draft. Uh, so yeah, I feel like I think you want you want that power structure in place. The question is going to come down to, you know, how much um, how much say like is this truly. Like, are your core decision makers already in place? Is Elton Brand and ownership and management, are they going to be the ones mostly deciding on it um, or not? And, you know, if you bring in a new staff, like, is this a situation where you might see some of the, maybe not the high level executive, maybe not the Alex Rucker who, who, who seems like he is a sure bet to leave, but like a lot of the, the scouting staff, um, are they going to stay in place? The, the draft staff, so that you have some kind of consistency in what they've been working on all year, you assume that's going to be the case where they're going to stay here. Would you, um, would you make any predictions on the type of execs they'll hire? 
Uh, like the people or the not pe- not names, but like I was thinking of what something similar to what Leon Rose did. Like he hired his cap guy from Cleveland, and then he hired a scout, Walt Perrin from Utah, who was associated with drafting Donovan Mitchell, and you know he's selling it as this all-star team pulled from different high-level organizations, and they'll be under him. Could Elton do something like that? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I certainly you you could you could see something like that. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Do you, have you considered what you might do this draft? I know you have the history of uh, of writing for Draft Express. Do you do you still see yourself as a scout? No, not anymore. Um, it's just when we launched the Athletic Philly, I just my my time shifted a little bit. Um, and honestly, it's one thing I miss probably the most. Like if I had my druthers, I think the draft is the most interesting part of basketball, both because of the incredible importance of it and also the almost impossibility of doing it well. And I don't even mean getting like everything right. I mean like legitimately doing it well after you get outside of the top pick. It is that that challenge is it's just fascinating to me. Like growing you tweeted learning, out, like make a big board and then look at it in four years. You'll see. Oh, no you'll bad. feel like an idiot. Absolutely. <laughs> I think all the time I, the example I always use, I go back, I had Giannis 10 and Giannis went like what? Like 15, 13, 14, 14, yeah. somewhere in that range. So I was higher than NBA GMs on Giannis. And I, like, there was something behind that. Like at draft express, we had gotten access to his game footage before a lot of people, before some teams even, What's your um, so, best and worst pick? I think they well, have the Rockets ask you that when you're trying to get I mean, a job. I mean, there. Giannis and Giannis. Like, so where I was getting to with that, Giannis 10th, that should be a win, right? Perennial a MVP win, yeah. candidate, higher than GMs, that's a win. And then I go back, I'm like, I had Alex freaking Len ahead of a perennial MVP candidate. I had Trey Burke ahead of an MVP candidate. And look, these are people who went ahead of him anyway. I had but Josh like, Jackson too high. How in the effing hell did i have alex len ahead of and like you just sit there and you think i uh, why does anybody follow me on twitter and that is the push and pull of the draft there's nobody who had Giannis number one there's nobody who had donovan mitchell that even people who love donovan mitchell didn't have him maybe where he should have gone like there's jalen brown jalen brown's one that i will look back all the time how did i miss that and it's just you learn and and it's interesting because you get to a point where it's like well should that have been knowable like, should I take what I learned from Jalen Brown and apply that to more people? Or was he edge case? Can I even pick apart what makes him edge case? And it's just a, it's, it's like a big science experiment that I, you'll never fully get to the answer of. And it's, it's fun. I mean, I, I mean, but yes, going back to your original question, we will be doing draft coverage and we've got two and a half months now before the draft. They just pushed it back. So we will certainly be doing draft coverage. I'm looking forward to it. Do I consider myself a scout anymore? No, like, Back when I was scouting, like if you had a, a top prospect like Chris Saps Porzingis, if he played thirty games in uh, for, for for Sevilla, I would have watched twenty of those games in full. Uh, I don't I don't do that anymore. But you do miss it. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Would Would you use all of these picks they've got? <sighs> what do they have? One one first round, three second round. At least three, I think. Might be more. Three, be three more. reasonably high second round. Picks. Two, two high. One in the forties and one in the fifties. Okay, so like. four. Um, no, you're not going to use all of them. You're not going to roster five rookies. I would like at least two. Like I, that feels like a reasonable ask, especially because what frustrates me is that the scouting department is the one part of this organization, one part of this front office that has consistently done well, not perfect, and. I mean, Markel is a pretty clear example, but they've done pretty reasonably well for where they've been slotted and they just give away these picks. So I would like to see them use two or three. Those ones in the thirties, I, I certainly value quite a bit. Draymond Green went there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole list of, of players we could go through. Um, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy, but Jimmy Butler is yeah. 30. Yeah. Yeah. 30. Right. He was last pick of the first round. Um, I would like to see them use a couple of these picks. Uh, it does seem like their recent history suggests that may not be the case. Like what you do in the fifties, I don't really, and I say this knowing full well that Shake Milton is one of the few positives of this team. Historically, the fifties are not a good place to get NBA talent. So if you want to sell those off, even the forties, but like the two and the thirties, I'd, I'd love to see them use those. 
Dort. He could have used Dort. I, I was a big fan of Dort last year. Yeah, for sure. And have you given any thought? Do you think that they will trade Al Horford before the season? I think they'll try. Yeah. Um, will they be successful? I don't really know. You know, I think it is a it's it's tough to predict who will be interested in a contract like that for a player like that. How everyone will evaluate him. I mean, the one everyone's going to go to is, is, is Sacramento, but the, I, they were interested. Arms last are year. healed. They were one of the, the they were pretty much the biggest threat to the Sixers, along with Boston, of signing him last year. Yeah, so I know they were the they case. were interested, um, but there's so many changes going on there. Will they still be? I don't know. But it's tough to really They're make out what the market will be. Yeah. Well, yeah. And do you think, but assuming that everything stays relatively in place, let's say that, you know, Elton retains or grows into whatever new autonomy he has and hires a couple people under him. How aggressive do you think they will be in moving Horford? Do you think they'll attach a couple picks to that? Yeah, I think, I think they'll be aggressive. Um, you know, I don't think they view that as a long-term solution. I don't think Al would be happy being a backup long-term. Uh, even even at his his age, and I don't I don't blame him for that either. I don't think this is what he signed up for. No. So I think I think all sides are interested in a trade. It's just there's a dwindling market for mid thirty centers uh, in, in in today's NBA. All right, I think I'm I think I'm up on questions. Really, really appreciate. It. Is there anything that you want to talk about? Are you got any secret projects? Anything you want to plug? Uh, I mean, if they're secret, they're secret. Uh, so no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna plug those now. Um, I mean, uh, I think the one you're referring to that's still kind of like in the in the future. Um, the the book that I sort of backed off because of reasons um, that I will pick up again in the future. I have offers from publishers to to do that. Uh, I am in no rush. I'm George R. R. Martining that. Other secret projects. That one's not a secret anymore. I've talked about it before. Other secret projects we will we will keep secret, but. Certainly appreciate uh, you having me on. It's weird being on this end of a podcast rather than the one hosting it. It's an yeah, enjoyable yeah. experience. Really, really happy you came on. Yeah, I've always wanted to talk to you and ask you, uh, ask you for Sixers takes. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. My pleasure. All right.